Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. Hi, folks. Yeah, I realize it's a weird time of the week to be hearing from me. But thanks to the fine folks over at Wondry and the brand new podcast, The Devil Within, I'm here with some bonus content. We'll talk more on that later. Now, what I have in store for you this evening is a hand-picked selection of gruesome tales, spooky stories, and odd happenings. So to kick this thing off, please welcome Summer from the state of Idaho to the program. Hi Derek, this is Summer from Idaho. I'm a longtime listener. One of my friends told me about you last year and I binged through the entire series and got caught up pretty quickly. Appreciate your content and thanks for letting us call in with our stories. My story is set in March 2012, coming back from a trip to the Oregon coast. We were driving along a pretty long, dark stretch of road, probably 9.30 or 10 at night. It was a clear night, no clouds in the sky, and it had just gotten pretty dark before we were driving down that stretch of road. Uh, Between Pendleton and Ontario, there's quite a long way that doesn't have much lighting, can't really see much unless you have your headlights on. And so as we were driving, I happened to look up, I was in the passenger seat, and I looked up into the side view mirror and saw one single light, pretty small, and then coming up on us behind. I assumed at first that it was a motorcycle. It had the same hue as those bright blue headlights that are just terrible on the eyes at night. That was the hue of it, but it was much softer in tone, like the light of a fire versus the light of a very bright light, but that cool blue color. So it came up behind us, came up very close. It was kind of bobbing back and forth, just how you would expect a moving vehicle light to look. And we thought, okay, well, just pass us. You know, there's no reason why you couldn't. There's nobody else on the road. We're watching this light, both the driver and I at the time, and kind of talking to each other like, well, go on, dude, pass us by. And all of a sudden, this light kind of rose over to the right and shot off to the right pretty quickly, very smoothly, clearly off the road, out into the bushes is basically all there is between there. It's pretty arid on that stretch of road. I shot off to the side. We thought, what the heck, what is that? Thought nothing of it more going forward, just kind of chalked it up to nothing. And about, I would estimate, 10 miles down the road, all of a sudden, the very same light, same blue, kind of just appeared behind the car again, bobbing back and forth. 
And again, we thought, what is going on? It couldn't have been a motorcycle at that point because it just appeared behind us again. There's no way that somebody, unless I suppose they had night vision goggles, could have come back up on us out there. I've heard you speak about ball lightning before. And at first I thought maybe that could have been it, but I don't know that something would appear and disappear and then appear again. Not sure of all the science of that, but that was one theory, the motorcycle theory, of course, as well. But then I don't know how to explain it, veering off to the side to where there's clearly no road and then suddenly appearing again behind us. Another thought would have been a drone, but I don't know how high tech those were in 2012. I'm not totally versed in that. So I would love any theories or if anybody else has had a similar experience there, would be cool to hear. Thanks again for letting us call in our stories. Thank you, Summer. Another odd sighting out of the state of Idaho. Shocker. Now, I love Summer's logical approach, but none of those logical explanations seem to add up for me. Either way, it's a great story. Thanks again for submitting. Now, next up, we venture to the state of Michigan, where Ray has a story waiting for us. Hi, Derek. This is Ray from Michigan. It's the first time I've ever called any podcast. Um, I have a lot of stories. The first one I want to tell is actually my wife's story. So in the late 90s, she used to get in quite a bit of trouble with her mom and the law. She was a little rebel. But one particular night, she was getting in a lot of trouble, got sent to her room, and she said she was laying there. And then she opened her eyes and she looked at the doorway and there was a man in a top hat standing at her. And then she closed her eyes and opened them again. And a couple seconds later, he was a little bit closer. And so she closed her eyes again and then opened them and he was at the foot of her bed. And she instantly freaked out, grabbed her Bible, threw her head under the blankets and prayed and prayed and prayed. And she said she never moved until the rest of the night. Well, the funny story is she told me this story, and I used to make fun of her because she used to explain that he looked like the way the planter peanut guy is. And so I would laugh and laugh and laugh. Well, a couple of years ago, I've always been into the paranormal, but I never knew a lot of, like, different entities and this and that. So I was listening to another show. It's actually a syndicated show. And he started talking about the hat man. And he explained to a T what she saw. Minus the, looks like the planter peanut guy. So I called her, you know, I wanted to make sure she knew everything about it again. I said, hey, random question, tell me everything you know about that night. And she went through the exact same detail, never missed a beat. I mean, full story, it was insane. And then I said, you know, weren't you getting in trouble at that time? Because they say that this happens when, you know, a lot of stress happens and, you're getting into trouble or, you know, all that good jazz. But it was just a really cool story. And she believes in ghosts, but she's not, like, into the paranormal. She's not into the monster. She doesn't listen to anything or do anything. So I thought it was a really interesting story. Pretty credible. I mean, we've been together 20 years, so I take her word for it. That's really it. I'll call back with more stories. Thanks. Ah, yes. The ghost of Mr. Peanut. I remember that story well. <laughs> Thank you, Ray, for sharing your wife's entry. Now, guys, for this next story, we stick around here in my home state of California, where Allie has a story for us. Hi, 
Derek. My name's Allie. I'm calling from California. I'm not quite caught up on the podcast yet. I'm still in season four, but I'm at the end of it, and I just heard the story you told about your grandmother. So I thought I'd pull and share my experience. It's by far my mildest experience, and the only one I've had personally that was anything close to comforting and not terrifying. So I'm the oldest of my cousins, and I have the privilege of being the namesake of both my father's grandparents. My great-grandmother was probably the nicest person I've ever known. She had polio as a child, so she had one leg longer than the other walked with a limp. But she was rather small, and she passed away when I was a preteen. And about a year after her passing, I had a very, just very vivid dream. In it, I was with my younger cousin. She's the next oldest in our clan after me. So we were playing outside of an old farmhouse, and we were playing kind of toward the back of it. And in the dream, we both realized that there was a rather large fire approaching the rear of the property. So we went inside, ran through an old screen door, and we found my dad and his next oldest sister, who has also since passed away, in the kitchen of this property. And both of my great-grandparents were in the living area of the home. My dad and my aunt were like they knew about the fire, trying to get essentials together and talking to their grandparents about leaving. My great-grandmother, I recall in the dream, kind of just looked up at him from her sewing and said, darling, we're going to be just fine where we are. And I remember that was kind of the end of it, but for the dream itself, I was more of an observer of my dad and his sister, and I could feel the peace from my great-grandparents, but it was more like an observation thing. Anyway, the next morning, I told my mom about the dream, and I gave her kind of the vivid description of the property, and she was pretty shocked and told me that my dad before leaving had told her relatively the same thing that he'd had about almost the same dream that night. And it wasn't too much later that we got the call that my great-grandfather had passed in his sleep. So out of curiosity, my mom tracked down an old photo album that my great-grandparents had on their property that I recall being stowed away in their home and we saw after the funeral service. So she went and found it, pulled it out, and showed me somewhere toward the middle of the book a picture of this farmhouse that was the exact same thing I dreamed about. And I don't believe in ghosts, but I like to think it was something that allowed us to kind of say goodbye a little bit easier. And it may just be that I'm a little bit more sensitive in my sleep because several years later, as a much older adult, my mom had surgery on her foot and I had a dream after her surgery. Initially, she it was something where they removed a toe, put it back on. It wasn't like any life-threatening thing. But I had this dream that there were three medical doctors preparing a medication and they placed a large white pill in a prescription bottle. And I knew it was intended for some reason to kill her. And so I found her and pushed her out of the hospital in a wheelchair. And again, it was just vivid. And most of the time dreams kind of go away and don't stick with you. But I went to work the next morning still disturbed about it. And the odd thing about the next day is my mom called me at work, which just doesn't happen. I have a really demanding schedule, and she just doesn't call me during work hours unless it's an emergency. And this absolutely wasn't. So I told her about it, just told her I was a little uneasy. How are you feeling? She didn't feel real well, so she called her primary care doctor. And through like some medical miscommunication between her foot specialist, another specialist she has, and her primary care doctor, the three medications together were a lethal combination for what she had after surgery. So it was kind of more of a 
premonition-y type thing, but I, I wouldn't label it and I'm not going to say what I think about anything of it. But anyway, it's definitely not like a quote monster story, but I figured I've been listening for four seasons, so I'll share something and probably the mildest thing I have. So enjoying the podcast. Thanks so much for letting me share. Bye-bye. Always trust your gut. At least that seems to be the moral of Allie's story. Oh, and Allie, check the records on that house if you can. See if there was ever a fire reported, just out of curiosity. Thanks again for submitting the call. Now, if you have a story to share, simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or you can visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com for more submission options. Now, next up, we hear from B in Ohio. Hey, Derek. My name is B. I'm from Ohio originally. And I'm calling with a, a couple of stories. First one's actually not mine. It's my parents. So my mom and dad, also from Ohio, um, actually, you're neck of the woods, kind of. We're from Cincinnati. So my mom and dad, um, they like to travel a lot. Uh, this was maybe back in the early 90s before I was born. And uh, my dad always tells the story. Um, so the story goes, they were in Boston and they were at some restaurant um, and he described it as like an old armory. And I did a little bit of research and I, I think he's describing what they call the castle. Um, it's like this really big kind of old structure. It used to be an armory. It sits right on the wharf. I've never been, but uh, that's kind of what I could gather from a Google research. So it's a restaurant in the bottom. And then the way he tells it is you're allowed to, to kind of wander upstairs. So they get in, they're given a pager and they say, okay, well, uh, we'll get your table ready. Um, y'all can go and look around. And so they're upstairs and my dad says, you know, I got a little bit ahead of your mom and I'm just enjoying everything. And he's super into history and architecture and everything that this castle was. So he, he was really enjoying himself. And all of a sudden he turns around and my mom is, is completely gone. He's looking for her everywhere. And, and finally he finds her downstairs in the, in the main restaurant party. What, what happened? Where'd you go? And she said, I felt a hand grabbing at me. And he said, what do you mean? And she just wouldn't really give much more detail than that. She just was like, nope, I felt someone grab me. And it freaked her out enough. My mom is highly skeptic, um, very stone-cold Irish woman. She's a wonderful human being, but she does not believe much in the paranormal. So to, to hear that my mom even kind of endorsed that this encounter happened freaked me out as a kid. And she, to this day, I can't get many details out of her about this encounter just because she was so freaked out by it. But she, she described it as like a hand grabbing her. I don't know if it was her shoulder or if grabbing her inappropriately. She, she won't tell me. But So that's, that's that story. Um, and then the other story that I have is, is my own. It's less freaky in my mind, but my grandparents used to live in Maine, so we'd visit them quite a bit. And, and one day, we were, me, it was me and my sister and my aunt. Um, we were staying in downtown Portland, Maine. And my aunt is, God love her, a hippie beyond belief. Um, so she is very good at finding very cool places to stay. So she found this kind of concierge hotel that was very old and very creepy and creaky. And my sister and I are super into this stuff. So we're, you know, oh, it's definitely haunted. Ha ha ha. So we're going to bed that night and I'm sharing a, a bed with my sister and my aunt's in, in the other bed. And all of a sudden I sneezed. I don't know if I had a cold or what, but I, I sneezed and I very distinctly heard someone say, bless you. And I said, thank you. And then I realized that it wasn't my sister who was sleeping right next to me, who I absolutely would have heard. And it didn't sound like my aunt. And the next morning I, I asked both of them, you know, did you say bless you to me when I sneezed last night? And both of them denied it pretty ardently. 
it could have been, you know, any number of things. I'm not putting my nickel down on, on the paranormal necessarily. It could have been my imagination or it could have been my aunt or my sister. Well, it wasn't my sister. She was next to me, but it could have been my aunt. She just didn't remember it. Uh, yeah, it could have been any number of things. I, I know that when you're going to sleep, kind of in those early stages of sleep, hallucinations, visual and audio are very common. Though I've never heard of hallucinations that um, are direct response to stimuli such as a sneeze. So I don't know. So those are my two stories. I love the podcast. Thanks for all you do. Bye. Who day be? Who day? Now, I actually grew up on the other side of the Buckeye State, closer to Pittsburgh than either Cincinnati or Cleveland. But it's always great to hear from another Buckeye. Thanks again for sharing your entry. Now, for this next one, we venture to the state of Kansas. Sarah. The floor is yours. Hi, so my name is Sarah. I actually have two encounters, but I'm going to start with one. First one is about UFOs, or what I assume is to be UFOs. So last year, about December, I seen what I what I think is a UFO. So we had got up early and had traveled to my mother's house four hours away, which I'm in Kansas and she lives in Missouri. And it happened to be the morning after a really big meteor shower. I guess there was a night there was a ton of meteor showers. And that morning when we were driving, we were still spotting them because it was like five in the morning. We were still seeing meteors. It was really neat. Falling stars, whatever you call it. We probably counted 11 or 12. And we got to Missouri and stayed there. And then the next morning, we had to get up and leave also because it wasn't a very long stay. And we left early again. And by the time we had gotten back to where I live, it was about three hours. So it was about an hour from my home and it hadn't gotten bright yet, but the sun was starting to come up, but it was still pretty dark out. And I seen at first what I had thought to be another meteor or falling star, but it moved completely differently. And then I seen it a second time. So what I had seen was a very bright, it looked like a star at first, and it kind of swelled up and got bright as it swelled and then shrunk back down and shot up into the air in one straight line. And at first I just kind of glanced, it just happened really fast. I didn't really know what was going on. And a few seconds later, I seen it again, a different one. The same thing, it looked like a bright star, but then the bright star swelled up real big. I mean, not like taking up the whole sky big, but much bigger than a star. And then it shrunk back down and shot up again in a straight line. And I asked my husband who was driving if he'd seen it, and he, of course, had not seen it, and just mentioned it was probably another shooting star. But it definitely did not look like another shooting star. It just kind of confused me as what it would be, because stars don't move up and they don't swell and get big. So we were driving home, and I just kind of kept thinking to myself what it could be, and I let it pass, you know, didn't really tell many people about it. And two weeks later, we were going back down there, and again, on our way home, in the same spot, around the same spot, I'd seen it again. Same time in the morning, probably 7 o'clock, and it was, you know, it was winter time still, so it was still pretty dark in the morning. 
and I'd seen two at the same time, two stars or what looked like stars to me, swell up real big and get real bright and then shrink back down and shoot up at the same time. And I said to my husband, look, there it is again, there it is. And he didn't see it. Well, then I told a few people and they just thought I was crazy and all of that. Fast forward to now, about a couple weeks ago, um, I was talking to a lady at work about it and she said, oh, you should go on this site. There's a site that has people's descriptions that they've seen different UFOs and stuff. And so I went on there and around the same time, within the last few months, there were a ton of reportings in the same area around the same time of similar things like that. I don't know if it's UFO or what, but it was just very unique and I still question what it is sometimes. But that was one story. Thank you, Sarah. You know, we're less than a month away from the release of this new UFO report to Congress. So what do you guys think? What will it say? And more importantly, will we be able to read it? Thank you, Sarah, for sharing your experience. Now, if I can have your attention for just one moment. As I said in the opener, the fine folks over at the brand new podcast, The Devil Within were kind enough to sponsor this bonus episode. And I'm going to take this opportunity to tell you about that brand new podcast that I just can't stop thinking about. For fans of true crime podcasts, you absolutely can't miss this one. Now, it's called The Devil Within. Now, it's a case that's haunted Jefferson Township, New Jersey for more than 30 years. On a snowy January night, a 14-year-old boy named Tommy Sullivan did the unthinkable. He murdered his mother in cold blood, set fire to their house, then he took his own life. Out of the flames of this horrible tragedy, investigations revealed that Tommy was himself a part of a satanic cult, sparking nationwide hysteria known as the Satanic Panic. This monumental moment in American culture led to communities nationwide enforcing draconian measures to protect their children from what they perceived to be the devil's influence. Even the Catholic Church was convinced this was a case of demonic possession. On The Devil Within, the truth behind the grisly murder is finally revealed. Did Tommy act alone? Did he really commit suicide? Is his cult still in power? The Devil Within finally sheds light on questions left unanswered for decades. You're about to hear a preview of The Devil Within, While you're listening, follow The Devil Within on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can binge the entire season right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Real quick, the clip I'm about to play for you describes some graphic violence and discussion about suicide. So, trigger warnings and all that. Uh, Went into the house with him. There were books on the floor that were on fire. were satanic books that were set up in a circle in the living room. Um, we started stamping it all out. He's screaming for his family. At that time, the younger son comes out of his bedroom, and Tom asked him if he saw his brother and his mother. He said, yeah, I saw Tommy. He was covered in blood. He said he cut his hand, and Mommy was taking him to the hospital for stitches. So the little kid went back to bed, apparently. I said to the senior, there you go. He cut his hand, your wife's taking him to the hospital. And he's like, no, both the cars are here. So I said, well, let's check downstairs. Get halfway downstairs. 
Tom looks to his left, sees his wife, who's been murdered, and just turns around and starts running out of the house. In January of 1988, a small town in the forests of northern New Jersey was rocked by a night of terrible violence. This is the true account of the murder of Betty Ann Sullivan, a 37-year-old wife and mother of two. The brutal, ritualistic nature of Mrs. Sullivan's murder only begins to scratch the surface of this heinous crime. Even today, more than 30 years later, the circumstances surrounding her death are still debated in the community. And of the people who remember that night that still live in town, there aren't many of them that are willing to talk about it. The story made national headlines because it fit into a larger narrative, an idea, a fear that had existed, for the most part, within the margins of the American social landscape, but would now be standing front and center. That fear was given a name, the Satanic Panic, and it had all at once metastasized from whispered urban legend to hysterical national nightmare. By the time Detective Paul Hart arrived on the scene, the single-story gray house with the black shutters was awash in the manic blinking of police lights. The firefighters didn't have much to do. The fire was contained before it had spread out of the family room. Detective Hart was more concerned with the basement, where the dead body was. At this point, he knew two things. There was a mutilated body of a woman in her late 30s, presumably Betty Ann Sullivan, the woman of the house. And her son Tommy, a boy of 14, was missing. He was sitting in quiet contemplation of this when his phone rang. Tommy Sullivan had been found, and it wasn't the news he was hoping for. The crime scene was across the street from the Sullivan home in the Eastman's backyard. And if the questions in his head weren't enough already, there were about to be many, many more. Mr. Eastman had been smart enough, or scared enough, to stay away from the body. The crime scene was intact, untouched. The snow surrounding the body was proof of that. Only one set of tracks led from the woods to the wood pile. Tommy had walked there alone. He picked a vantage point from which he could see his front door, where he could watch as the coroner removed his mother's body from the house. Then he sat down in the snow and went about the terrible business of killing himself. He had a small pocket knife that he got from the Boy Scouts, a knife he would now plunge deep into his left wrist. Only he didn't quite know what he was doing. The blade slid between the bones of his wrist, severing tendon and ligament, but not rupturing enough blood vessels for him to bleed out right away. He tried again and again, but kept getting the same results. In terrible pain, probably close to passing out from shock, and afraid that he'd be discovered before he actually finished the job, Tommy chose a more permanent solution. With his remaining good hand, he plunged the small three-inch blade into his neck, just below his left ear, and summoning what must have amounted to superhuman strength, dragged the blade across his neck until it reached his other ear. The depth of the cut was astonishing, as was the amount of damage it inflicted. Arteries, muscles, windpipe, larynx, all completely severed. There was an explosion of blood and gore, and the weight of his head, in the absence of the muscles of his neck, nearly overcame the structural integrity of his cervical spine. As it was, the result of the single slash of his blade left him with his right ear 
come to rest on the back of his right shoulder blade, with his chin pointing straight into the sky. Detective Hart knew immediately that the blade in Tommy's hand would have forensic evidence confirming it as the knife used to murder Betty Ann Sullivan. He also knew that Tommy's fingerprints would be found on the dumbbell in the Sullivan residence. What he didn't know was how these wounds could be self-inflicted, and he wondered if any evidence would be found indicating that the death of this boy was anything other than a suicide. Questioning of the family opened up many disturbing avenues of investigation for law enforcement. Satanic worship, musical influence in the form of heavy metal bands, concealed obsession with the occult, and all in an incredibly short period of time. The family stated that at Thanksgiving, Tommy was his normal self. But six short weeks later, he seemed to be a completely different person. The last piece of evidence that was collected that night and delivered to Detective Hart the next morning was a folded sheet of paper recovered from Mr. Sullivan's car that had been crashed and abandoned in the Eastman's driveway. It was written in Tommy's hand and was a contract between Tommy and the great demon of hell that called for the murder of his family followed by his own suicide. The signature on the bottom was simple and clearly legible, barely in cursive. The signature of a kid, a child really, who mere weeks prior was a well-adjusted boy of 14, a loving son and brother, a loyal friend and gifted student who was completely normal and well-adjusted in the way that all parents hope their children to be. To understand exactly what happened to this promising young man now requires a deeper investigation, an investigation into the fertile, impressionable mind of a teenager and what influences could so dramatically alter his entire personality. Were there signs that everyone missed? Could this have been prevented? And finally, is there any way for us to possibly know if there was something darker, something more sinister at play that led to a 14-year-old boy murdering his own mother and then taking his own life? a boy named Tommy Sullivan, who had come to be known by a new name, the Jersey Devil. Go tell So if that sounds like something you might be into, head on over to your podcatcher and check it out. And if you do, be sure to tell them that Monsters Among Us sent you. Now, resuming our content. Our next story comes to us from the bluegrass state of Kentucky. Jack, go ahead with your story. Hi, Derek. My name is Jack. I live in Kentucky, very close to Mammoth Cape National Park. And I say that because this story actually kind of relates to that. My aunt and uncle were driving home. They live in Louisville, Kentucky, and they'd been down visiting uh, our family. And an easy way to get to the interstate from Brownsville, where I'm from, is to go through Mammoth Cave National Park. And close to the park boundary, they were driving, and they just looked over and happened to notice this big black cat that was walking through this field. I can't remember all of the details. This has been a very long time ago, um, and unfortunately, my uncle is now deceased. 
But I'm pretty sure they said it like jumped over a fence and then kind of walked into the woods. But it was large enough that they, I remember that they had to stop and like really take a look at, you know, what they were seeing. And they were pretty amazed. This probably happened sometime, I'd say anywhere from 1960 to 1980. I don't know an exact date, but there's lots of stories about uh, different types of strange animals and sightings in uh, Mammoth Cave National Park. Uh, Thanks for the podcast. You're awesome. You know, it's funny. It's always one of a handful of states. Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Maryland, the Carolinas, Tennessee. It's just that little pocket of the Appalachias that seem to harbor these weird black animals. That's good stuff, Jack. Thanks for relaying the story. Now before I play this next story, I need to give everyone a trigger warning. There is talk of suicide in this next story. That's sad. Please welcome Chris from California to the program. Hey Derek, this is Chris from Simi Valley calling again with uh, one more story for you. Um, and this isn't really a paranormal thing, but it, it's just interesting. And it, I'm not a big believer in, in, in curses or anything like that. But this one story is just, I don't know, there were too many little instances that just kind of add up to being something is just off. So in uh, about 2006, uh, my family and myself, we moved up to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I know you've had a lot of uh, listeners call in with uh, Idaho stories and uh, like Ponderay and Sandpoint and all that. That's like uh, you know, a city that's really close to Coeur d'Alene. So it was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we bought this house in the Cougar Gulch area uh, off the beaten path of, of Coeur d'Alene. And we bought it with the knowledge that a suicide had taken place in a detached garage of the house. The house was on 10 acres. It had a main house and then it had like a small guest house. Uh, my in-law stayed up in the main house with my sister-in-law and my wife and our infant son at the time uh, stayed in the guest house since we didn't need that much room. We had known about the suicide and we didn't want to get spooked by anything like that, so we didn't really pay it any mind. I mean, it's interesting, it sucks, you know, obviously it's tragic for that family, but it doesn't have any impact on us or anything. It's, you know, whatever. So we bought the place, we moved in, and things were fine. Nothing really crazy. But what happened then is that just over the series, we lived there for about eight years, and over the course of time, things just were weird. You know, we would always kind of have bad luck with the place. Things would just always happen in a way that just would kind of maybe be annoying at the time, but then when you kind of take a step back, things were just weird. My in-law's marriage disintegrated in front of our eyes. We ended up getting a, a, a pretty messy divorce. My sister-in-law fell down a pretty bad rabbit hole with... Uh, substance abuse and, uh, and, and the like. That became a whole thing. We actually ended up, once the divorce went through, we ended up swapping houses. My father-in-law, he stayed on the place with us. Uh, my mother-in-law moved out. We ended up uh, swapping places, and I had a home office in the basement of the big house. And it always felt off. Something just felt this weird, not, not like, oh, there's a ghost in here, anything like that. It just felt off. There was just a weird energy in there. I don't know what chalk it up to whatever, but it was just bizarre. It was kind of like that you're being watched, but not really. It was just something was just weird. And we go about our business. Things ended up changing for us. I had to move back down here for work. My wife stayed up there. She started to have some issues with her health and who knows what was going on there. We ended up moving out. Or she moved back down to California with me. My father-in-law stayed there to watch after the place. He and his relationship with his son just started to disintegrate. And this all culminated into him, his son, my brother-in-law, actually taking his life 
And what's weird is that it took place in the exact same spot that the original suicide had taken place in. And that one was just like, that's weird. Like the exact same location on terms of the property and the exact same spot inside the garage. Um, and both by the same means, both, both with, uh, with a gun. And it was just like, this is now weird. We ended up trying to sell the place. I had the place on the market for well over a year and anything you could think of that would possibly break a sale, that it would stop a sale going through happened every single time. We'd have, have, have a buyer, something would happen. If they go into escrow, something would happen. It, every single step of the way, it was almost like this place would not let go of us. It was weird. We finally got it sold. We finally washed our hands of it. But yeah, I don't know. It, it, it was just like I said, I'm not a big believer in anything kind of curse-like, but it was just like if, if I had to point to one example of, of there being a curse, it would be this example. It was just very, very weird. So I don't know if you can use that. I know it's not really a traditional uh, traditional story as far as, uh, as, far as the pod, but uh, anyway... Thought, uh, thought it'd be interesting, and uh, like I said, keep up the good work. All right, bye. You know, maybe after a certain point, the curse became self-fulfilling. Regardless, it's a tragic story, and I certainly hope the next owner had a better run of luck. Thanks, Chris, for sharing your entry. Now, for this next one, we meet up with Addie in the state of Texas. Hi, Jared. This is Addie from Texas. I recently called calling about a ghost story that happened when I was a kid with the B&B that my mom used to manage. Well, I have another ghost story for you. This happened in Galveston. I used to work at this store in like the popular shopping area. And Galveston's a really historic town. So it's one of the most haunted places in, in Texas, I think. So a lot of ghost stories come from here. Well, in the store that I was working at, it was, you know, like a, a retail store, but it had been transformed, you know, over time. And before the Great Flood, it had been a bar, kind of. And the story goes that, so the building that store was in was two stories. So the bottom floor was the actual store, and then the top floor, we had, like, storage. So go up and there is the upstairs, and then... There's like a swinging door and you go through past that door and that's what we called the ghost room. So the story goes, that's what my manager told me, back when the store was still a bar, a woman had hung herself in the rafters and it said that she still haunts the place. So naturally when I started working there, I was intrigued because I've always been intrigued with ghosts. So I kept looking for signs, and, you know, my coworker would tell me, oh, yeah, she moves stuff, she'll make noises, things will happen when nobody's here. And I thought that was really cool, and I've only experienced a couple of things from her, but I thought I would let you know. They're small things, but I still think it's interesting. So one thing I remember specifically is it was just me and a coworker, and we were both managing the register. There's no one else in the store. It was middle of the day. There was nobody walking along the shopping district either. Um, really slow day. Anyway, we had these like music boxes, what we called them, and they're like little scenes. So you wind it up, and then it looks like a TV box, like an old TV box. And so you wind it up, and it plays music, and things move, and we just called them music boxes. Anyway, so usually customers would come in, turn them on, watch them play for a little bit, and we had a sign that asked people, please turn off the music boxes, please don't waste our batteries. Well, at this point, there was no one in the store. Like I said earlier, it was just me and the coworker. And then out of nowhere, we heard 
when the music boxes turn on. I'm like, okay, that's weird. And my coworker is like, can you go check and see if anyone's at the store? You know, maybe we missed something. And so I was looking around and I walked through the store and then I noticed that nobody was there. It was just me and my coworker. There's no customers in the store. And so we like to think that the ghost had turned on the music boxes. So that was kind of thing that would happen. Music boxes would turn on randomly, things would move. And then another instance that I had with the ghost, I like to call her Lorelei because I found a table upstairs with that name scratched in it. So I just refer to the ghost as Lorelei. I don't know if that was actually her name, but that's what I refer to her as. Anyway, so I was upstairs uh, doing inventory and I was looking for some flags that we were selling. Uh, my coworker had asked me to go grab them. So I was upstairs in the back room and I couldn't find the flags that she had said. She's like, they're in this specific area. You can't miss them. They're right there. I'm like, okay. And I looked in the areas. There's nothing here. So I kept looking, kept walking around. She said it was specifically right there. So I looked, couldn't find them anywhere. And so I went into the ghost room. That's what they called it. And it was a creepy room. Like it had two big open windows, rafters. There was always a draft. It was the creepiest place. But it had some more of her stuff. So I walked in there, and every time I walked in there, I got this, like, feeling of somebody else was there. So I walked in, looked around, and I walked back from the ghost room into the back room. And I looked again at that specific spot that she had told me to look, and there were the flags. I don't know how they got there. I don't know where they went. I don't know. Nobody else came upstairs. And so I took another look around. There was nobody else up there except for me. And the flags were just mysteriously there. So I like to think that originally they might have been misplaced, but maybe Lorelai brought them to my attention to help me. So she never caused me any pain or grief. She just liked to move things, turn things on and off. Just kind of overall annoyance. But that is my ghost story. Love your podcast. Started binge listening to it. Also, just a uh, fun note, you don't have to include some podcast, uh, but I got to the part where you said that your um, social media person is, I think Addie Lloyd is her name. I just think it's hilarious because I haven't really met anyone else named Addie, so it's cool to know there's another Addie out there who is helping you out with the podcast. Anyway, um, like I said, enjoy your show. Have a great day. You know, there may be a couple different Addies across the country, but I guarantee you there's only one Crypto Den Mom. So a big shout out to Addie Lloyd. I'm sure she's listening in her minivan, doing 90 down the highway. And a huge thanks to our other Addie for sharing that entry. For this next story, we head all the way back to Ohio. Hey Derek, this story is kind of a weird one, but I wanted to submit it anyway to see if anybody else knew about this. So as a child, I lived in Florida for seven years and this story, or basically this experience, happened over the course of maybe two and a half years. <laughs> so I remember I was about five or six and I don't remember how, but this thing showed up in the corner of my room. I don't even remember when but it was. So I guess I have to call it an imaginary friend, but more of like imaginary acquaintance because this thing was, uh, I don't even want to remember it, but it looks like this spider with a human face. It had long spindly black arms and legs, eight of them. 
I remember it in vivid detail because, you know, something like this you can't forget. But it had this very human-like face, but I remember it didn't have ears, and it was very pale, very pale, except for the rest of its body, of course. It was, like, pitch black. And it looked like a spider from, like, a body, but its arms had, like, needle-like fingers. It didn't have, like, palms of its hands, just its fingers. And it was always smiling, and it was always sitting in the corner of my bedroom. I guess you can chalk this all up to, like, children um, imagining things, but it didn't go away over the course of two and a half years. And its smile, I will never forget its smile, because it had this, you know, like, not, oh, you're doing great, sweetie, smile. It was more of like a, I know something you don't smile. It never stopped smiling. So as a child, I just learned to get used to it. I would sleep, and it, my bed was straight across from it. It'd be in one corner, my bed is in the other. And I would look straight across at it. And I guess I learned to ignore it because even as a child, you know, if you're seeing things that nobody else can see, it's never a good sign. So I didn't tell anyone because even as, at a young age, I'd watched enough movies and Scooby-Doo and stuff to know that. Because if I told a parent, they would be like, oh, you're just imagining it. So I knew that it would just end up like that. So I didn't tell anyone, but I did ask my sister if she ever saw anything in the corner of our room. And she was like, oh, what are you talking about? Because she was maybe four five at the time as well. So basically my experience happened late at night and this thing of course was sitting in the corner of my room. And I was holding this Pink Panther rubber stretchy doll, you know, that you can like contort its limbs and it'll like stick in that place. I was obsessed with the show as a kid, like not the movie of course, but I had that Pink Panther doll and I was ignoring the thing as usual because I didn't even try to communicate with it. It was definitely not a human and I did not want to see it, but it didn't scare me, I guess. And now if I had seen it, it would have scared the living daylights out of me. But as a child, it didn't because I got, just got used to it. So I was holding the Pink Panther doll and I fell asleep with it in my arms. And this is where it gets weird. I dreamed that I was looking over a tub full of water and my Pink Panther doll was in the tub. And I remember the arms of this thing reached out of the drain, grabbed the Pink Panther doll, and then it, like, it had this cut scene to the water like swirling down into the drain and the Pink Panther doll going with it, and the arms, like, pulling it down. The next morning, I woke up crying and, like, screaming, and my mom comes, she's like, what is it, what is it? And I'm just freaking out, and I keep repeating, where is it, where is it? And she, she's, like, freaking out, why is my kid screaming, where is it, where is it? And I keep looking, and I cannot find the Pink Panther doll. And I had this moment of dread, where I look over into the corner of the room, and the thing was gone. For the first time in, like, two and a half years, the thing was gone. And I just remember being so shocked it was gone and I wasn't in that quarter. And I was like in this moment of just terrified silence. I couldn't do anything. And I guess as a child, this just overwhelmed my sense of reality. So later on, as I explained, we moved to Ohio and that's where we're living right now. And as I was looking everywhere, we would have found it because we were moving and we had to pack up all our possessions. So we never found the Pink Panther doll. And, you know, parents would have told me, because I'm obviously old enough, they had thrown it away. And they never did. They never told me. They never even knew that it disappeared. But when I asked them, they're like, well, we didn't throw it away. Of course we didn't throw it away. So they knew how, how attached I was to that doll. So I never found it, never saw the scary thing that sat in my room. But I wanted to know if anyone else had any experience like this, because I don't know, this honestly scarred me for life. And whenever I see, like an animation that looks closely towards it, like a uh, pale face with a spider-like body, I get like 
completely tense as I remember this story and experience that I had. And for, uh, over the past couple of years, I totally forgot about the imaginary friend thing until a caller mentioned, and I don't even know what episode it was or what season, they mentioned that they had saw like, the spider-like creature crawling on their walls, and it just brought back so many memories. So I just wanted to know if anyone else had an experience like this, or if you can explain whatever this was. Maybe it really was just imagination, but it feels too real to have been imagination, and I can't explain where the doll went. I just don't know. Anyway, thank you so much, Derek. I hope that this call can be used. It's kind of out of the normal, but I guess that's what paranormal is. Anyway, thanks. I love the show. Have a great day. Stay safe. Bye. Thank you, Maddie. This isn't the first time we've heard a story about a spider with a human head. I think back to, I believe it was Scott's story from season four or five, where he was in battle overseas and experienced something oddly similar to what Maddie just described. Eerie stuff. So maybe somebody else out there can shed some light on what's actually going on here. Thanks again, Maddie, for sharing the entry. And well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And please join us over on social media. We have accounts on all your favorite platforms. And finally, the terrifying score that you heard this evening was provided by Co.AG Music and Carl Casey and White Bat Audio. Thank you so much for listening. And until next week. Now, you really didn't think I would duck out of here without a secret entry, did you? Well, not only do I have a secret entry, but I have an extremely creepy one. And again, with this story, there is another trigger warning. In this story, there's light discussion of a deceased child. So with that in mind, please welcome Matt from the state of California. Hey, Dirk. This is Matt. I'm calling from Los Angeles. I wanted to go ahead and share a pretty spooky story. It's October now, so I've been listening to the show, and I've been just thinking of kind of ghost-themed stories that I think would be good for the show. This happened to me in about, I think it was 2013, or it might have been the the spring of 2014. Either way, um, I work in here in downtown Los Angeles as a school teacher. taught high school for a few years. I teach middle school now, but my first few years of teaching, I taught high school at a school in South Central Los Angeles, which is a pretty rough area, but I had uh, some really good students. I was really lucky. I had a great class with an honors cl- uh, honors kids, honors class, and um, they were just doing really well. I teach English, and I noticed, though, that one of my students, there was a kind of 
the slump where they were they weren't turning in work on time anymore and their grade was starting to drop and they were kind of falling asleep in class and and it was pretty surprising having that kind of behavior um, come from one of my honors kids so I asked the student you know I kind of called her over to the desk while everyone else was working I was like hey I noticed that your your grade's starting to drop you're not turning work in and um you know, you're kind of falling asleep a lot. Like, what's going on? And she tells me, oh, well, my, my family and I, we just moved. We're moving houses right now. And, I, and then instantly I'm like, okay, well, like, in my mind, I'm like, that kind of explains, I guess, why they're like tired helping me move the house, you know. And But the, the student goes on to tell me, she's like, yeah, we moved houses and the family that was there before us, we found out that the, the little girl that used to live there, uh, she ended up drowning in the bathtub before we moved in. And then the family left and we got the house. And I was like, I'm thinking, oh God, like, okay, like, where's this going? And then she goes to tell me that the reason she's been so tired in class lately is because in her room, which was the girl's room that passed away, she said, my student told me I've been waking up in the middle of the night because the girl is there in my room in the corner and she's asking me if I'll come play with her. And I'm just listening to this student and I'm thinking holy crap like what this I've never heard this excuse before and I just kind of said all right well have you talked to your parents about this I said yeah they know it's there too but it was interesting the student really didn't come across as scared they just came across as kind of annoyed as if this ghost kid was actually really just waking her up saying hey come play and so I just was kind of like okay well like if you need some extensions on like the homework let me know and they ended up kind of bouncing back and turning in work. But like every couple weeks or so, that student would like roll into class and they were just dragging, like looking super tired. And I would kind of give the student this look like, whoa, did the ghost kid come back? And she would just kind of look at me and without saying anything, she would just kind of like nod her head. And so that's my story that I had a student basically tell me that they were getting woken up by a ghost of a dead kid in the middle of the night consistently while they moved into their new house. And uh, that really creeped me out. I went home, I remember telling my wife about it, like as soon as I got home, I was like, you're not gonna believe this excuse I heard. But this was an honors kid. They weren't a liar, they had a really good track record at school, and it just seemed like if they were trying to like lie or play a joke, it didn't really work, and they seemed very sincere. And being one that's kind of more open-minded and myself, I'm, I believe in the paranormal, that's why I love the show. I believed her. Anyway, that's my story, Derek. I hope you like it. Thanks again for the great show. Really enjoying listening to it. And I appreciate that you give everybody a place to share these stories and no one's really going to get laughed at or kind of, you know, talked down to. You really approach everything in a really level-headed way um, that I appreciate. So thanks a lot. That's it. Happy Halloween. Yeah. Happy Halloween. Thank you, Matt. That is a good one. And like you, I especially like the fact that the witness seems to be fairly credible. It seems very out of character for an honor student to pull something strange like that. It was a great call, so we thank you for calling it in, Matt. And we also thank The Devil Within for providing us with this bonus content. And lastly, thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a good night. <laughs>